My name is Elizabeth Lewis, and I'm the owner and CEO of Detroit Mom. As a teen mom, I know firsthand the feeling of isolation and the fears that come at different stages of motherhood. I spent half the time wondering where to find community and the other half dreaming of a way to create that community for myself and the women around me. No mother should experience change and challenges alone. I created this community and podcast to make sure women in my community are never alone. Welcome to the Unfiltered Mom Podcast. The intention of this podcast is to make sure you have a voice and your story is being heard. Welcome to The Unfiltered Mom. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lewis. And before we even get started today, I want to give a trigger warning to anybody who has experienced pregnancy or infant loss. And if this is you and you're uncomfortable, please do not listen anymore. But if you want to, listen at your own pace, feel comfortable, and know that you have permission to stop listening at any time. So let's go ahead and get started. Today, we are going to talk about pregnancy and infant loss. And we're specifically going to talk about a group of women that is a little bit less recognized for pregnancy and infant loss because it's kind of, I guess it's a topic that, gosh, how would you put this, (laughs) Jessie? I would say it's a sensitive topic. It's part of a group of women that oftentimes feels left out, feels like they don't have a group that they maybe belong to or that people are uncomfortable talking about. And so for that reason, I think it's uh, especially this month being Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. It's, it's a way to open a conversation for women who have gone through this and help them feel less alone and maybe help them feel seen. Yeah. I know when you and I talked about it, you said that there's women who have experienced this particularly feel like it's hard to be recognized in a month like this because of how people feel with their own beliefs. And so I'm going to go ahead and get started. But Jesse, I'm going to let everybody introduce themselves. Let's start with you. Sure. I'm Jesse Sutherland, and I am an infertility and loss mom myself, and I help run the infertility and loss support group for Detroit Mom and also help co-host the pregnancy after loss and infertility group for Detroit Mom. So, and I'm honored to be here today with two people I admire and respect and just love so much. So I'm looking forward for them to have a chance to share their story and their truth. I love it. All right, Brooke, you're up. My name is Brooke Stone and I am an infertility and loss mom as well. I am a therapist in the Detroit area, and I specialize in perinatal mental health. And so I've purposed my life to walk alongside moms and parents that have experienced uh, loss. I love it. Rachel. Hi, everyone. I'm Rachel Redmond. I live in East Lansing, and I also support women and mothers. I'm an acupuncturist and an Ayurvedic practitioner, so I've worked with many women struggling with infertility, and I've also experienced pregnancy loss, and I'm just so grateful to share my story with you all because, as we said, I often felt like I didn't have a place in the pregnancy loss community, and it was so difficult to kind of feel invisible and to hold that loss kind of alone. So I'm glad to be here. Thank you guys for being here because I realized this, to be quite honest, I didn't even realize this was a thing, that it had like a specific term until uh, one of my girlfriends, well, I didn't even know what it was at that time. One of my girlfriends had said to me, she said, hey, do you, what is your group called for Detroit Mom Infertility and Law Support Group, and I sent it to her, and she said, my girlfriend, she went up for her 20-week ultrasound, and the doctor was like, your baby's not going to make it. And she goes, okay, so what do I do? Mm -hmm. And he said, you can carry the baby to term, or you can go to Planned Parenthood and have an abortion. And I, I don't know specifics of her story. My girlfriend said that she chose because of what the doctor had said to her to terminate her pregnancy. 
So she had to make this decision solo because of COVID. She couldn't go in. Her husband couldn't come in with her. Then she had to drive to Planned Parenthood. Her husband had to sit in the car with protesters while she went in and had an abortion. And one that she did not want to have. And so when Jesse and I spoke about this, I was like, I didn't even, I didn't realize how common it is because we don't talk about it and because women aren't talking about it. And I see why they're not talking about it because I feel like we, we kind of talked about this before is a, a lot of women are either one way or the other. They, their beliefs are their beliefs and they're not willing to listen to each other. And Brooke, you, you made a really good statement before. I want you to repeat that Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I really want, before we even go into this, I want you guys to hear what Brooke has to say about this specific topic. So as you're listening, somebody who's never experienced pregnancy and infant loss, you can listen with an open mind and you can realize that these women made their decisions based off of what they felt was right. And it's really not your position right now to judge. It's your job to listen and to offer sympathy and empathy, really empathy, because at this point, sympathy, right? I think it's more being empathetic to you didn't have to make the decision. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't affect your life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think and, yeah. we talk about this often. I was going to say, it's. I even struggle with calling it a decision sometimes because it's like you're dealt the shit. Can, or can we swear? On <laughs> We're the un- <laughs> we are the unfiltered mom. You okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're dealt the shittiest card, yeah. you know? And so anyways, I want, I want Brooke to kind of say what you were saying as a disclaimer before we get into it. But yeah, I just, I want to encourage people to actually listen to what each of us are saying instead of what we're not saying. Oftentimes, statements can be made. And, you know, if I say, I love my husband, and that's why I made this decision, someone could take that, well, the other person didn't love their husband, and that's why they, and and that's not what I'm saying. And, And so I just want people to actually listen and hear the words that are spoken and don't fill in any gaps that aren't there, right? We each were put in a really difficult situation and quite honestly I still wonder about the decisions that I made two years ago and sometimes I still don't know why I made those decisions they felt right at the time call it gut call it it intuition when you're backed into a corner Mm -hmm. you never know how you're going to react until you're there yeah I agree with that the other thing that might be just helpful for listeners too I think is kind of defining termination for medical reasons we might refer to it as TFMR which is just an acronym for that and that usually happens and I'll let you guys please jump in if I say anything incorrectly but in scenarios where it's found that the baby has some sort of life limiting or life ending diagnosis whether that's like a genetic mutation or chronic disorder so it happens in in that realm or if there is extreme danger to the mother and sometimes it's both of those things that there's something really life-limiting with the child that could also cause very serious issues for the mother so just as and there's even more scenarios as as you get into it women I know who've been diagnosed with cancer during their healthy pregnancies and had to choose you know to treat themselves for you know with chemotherapy or carry to term they couldn't do both Mm -hmm. so mental health issues women who've had depression major depressive disorders who weren't able to really carry to term so there's so many nuances as we will talk about yes and I think it's important you know as we get ready to jump in that women put their biases aside and walk just a minute in your shoes you know, listen to what you're, like you said, Brooke, listen to what you're saying and imagine having to make these decisions and putting yourself in there and not knowing if you made the right decision years later, right? Mm-hmm. With, with anything in life, I think this is, we're specifically talking about this, but this could be any situation in your life and until you're in the situation. I, I've said this, I had postpartum so bad with my fourth that I you know, full transparency, I'm like, I can't have another baby. I, I literally, I've lost both my parents. I can't go through that. Like it was, it was probably the worst thing ever I've ever been through. So in my mind, getting pregnant again was like, what would I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, truly, what would I do? Like, mm-hmm. because I, I had thoughts. I was just like, oh my gosh, I just, I can't do this anymore. And so I think that that's kind of the big thing, just putting yourself in that space to just be like, 
okay, I'm not judge. I'm not going to judge. I'm just listening and, and walking in her shoes. Just even if it's just this episode, you guys do that. But hopefully, it helps as you move forward, and you run into somebody that you know, or maybe your your daughter or a friend, or somebody goes through this at some point in their life. Maybe this will help you. So let's jump in and let Brooke. Let's let's hear your story first. Yeah. Gosh, where do I even begin? So. I have a five-year-old, and he is adopted. We adopted him at birth, and due to nine years of infertility, we just figured that that's, that's our family story, right? Like, we're going to add to our family through adoption, and we had a great experience. And as we were preparing for a second adoption, I found out I was pregnant, and I was literally floored because... For nine years, I had negative test after negative test and unexplained infertility. And, you know, for our own reasons, we decided not to try any medical interventions. We just put our efforts and, and money in towards, towards adoption and uh, totally floored by this pregnancy and elated. Like, but also really freaking nervous, right? Yeah. Like after nine years of your body quote unquote, not working, Mm -hmm. you don't just assume that, you know, this pregnancy is going to stick. And so fought with my doctors to like get in. I'm like, no, please just test like my HCG levels. Like I don't, (laughs) I'm not trusting a pregnancy (laughs) test after nine years of infertility. And, you know, the first eight, almost 12 weeks were really happy. You know, I was full of anxiety, but we were just so elated that this finally happened. And when we went in for our 12-week appointment, I did the blood test because we wanted to find out the gender and, like, we want to do everything early. And the appointment went really well. And I remember two days later, I was having lunch with my husband. And I was like, I I just don't feel like something's off. And he's like, oh, you're just so negative. Like, just be happy. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I remember I got a phone call from the doctor's office at that lunch and they're like, yeah, you need to come in and talk to the doctor. I was like, that's not good. Mm-hmm. You know, that's never good. And so I sat with it for a few hours, and then I called back. And I was like, well, uh, he can't see me for two days. Like, can I come in, like, tomorrow, today? Like, that that is torture. And she's like, no, I'm sorry. He doesn't have anything open. And I was like, well, can you at least tell me if it's positive or negative? I have a feeling it's negative. And she was kind enough to at least tell me, like, it, it's not good news. And when we went in... You know, our OB at the time didn't have a lot of information for us, but basically told us that our baby had markers for trisomy 13. And he actually gave us a lot of misinformation, which was (laughs) horrifying looking back. And he told us that, oh, you know, like just some physical defects, like that's, that's it. And he's like, but don't look at any pictures, like don't Google anything because you'll be terrified. Uh, uh, okay oh I was like well can I at least know the gender of my baby and he's like you want to know the gender and I was like yes it's my baby <laughs> yeah it's my baby and we found out we were having a boy and we left that appointment and I got in the car and I immediately pulled out my phone and I googled and I was like this is not just physical defects this is this baby's not going to live like our baby is going to die like there is no life expectancy you know for the most part, I mean, there are trisomy 13 babies that do live for a year or a couple years, but it's extremely rare and it's based on a number of things. And we saw uh, a maternal fetal specialist next and had an ultrasound. And I remember laying for that ultrasound and like watching my baby like move around, do flips and kick. And I, I'd never seen an ultrasound before. I was like, my baby looks fine. Like, I, mm. maybe they were wrong. Like, it's fine. And she came in, and, and she was like, I'm, no, like, I, it, and this is it. Like, he has trisomy 13. Like, I'm seeing a lot of soft markers, and they'll be able to fully confirm at your anatomy scan. We were in the process of moving. We were still in Virginia. And she was like, I want you to go to U of M. Like, I'm really happy you're going to live near there. They'll take good care of you. And so we were terrified, right? Like, walking out of that appointment, I lost it. I was like, like, what do do we do with this news? Like, we've waited for nine years, and then the first time, like, I get pregnant, (laughs) 
it this is what happens like this how could this be and just like we were beside ourselves and in that appointment we asked you know is there any harm to my health and she was like no and I was like is the baby in pain she's like no I was like okay and she's like you can you know choose to terminate or you can choose to carry and I said well right now I'm like I want to carry you know like I want to I want to choose to carry this baby she's like well you'll get more information at your anatomy scan and so we moved to Michigan and got in with U of M and had the anatomy scan and I will never forget like sitting in a tiny little office and they are reading me a laundry list of things that are wrong with my baby organs that he's missing uh, he didn't have a chin I mean just it was thing after thing and I could like feel my whole body getting hot and like I was going to pass out because it was like the list just kept going and um walking out of that appointment and again like I decided to carry my baby not because I thought anything was going to turn around or miraculously happen or um, the cards we were dealt were going to change in that moment like I had wanted it so bad you know and Mm -hmm. I could feel him at that point and I figured this is the only time I'm going to have with him. This is the only way I'm going to spend time with him. And so I decided to carry a terminally ill child and felt like a ticking time bomb. You know, we had subsequent appointments and a couple scans after that showed that some of the things in the earlier scans had either changed or or weren't accurate like he did have a chin and he did have a stomach and some of those things seemed to I don't know be not clearing up but it was just a more accurate picture because he was bigger right like they could they could yeah. see more things we had more data and again like I, I was never okay my baby my baby will be okay it was more of I have more time like these are good these are good markers these are good things and it just means that I have more time and then it was like the middle of summer and we went to another appointment and they're like well you know like it's time for you to kind of start thinking about like what your goals are right and one of our biggest goals was to try and be able to meet him it seemed he was doing well doctors were surprised that he had made it this far along and they're like well you know if you really want to meet him we should probably try to schedule an induction at 34 weeks. And based on his heart defects and how his brain was not developing, we had chose to not do any drastic medical interventions. And those are conversations you never think you'll have to have. And I mean, like, step by step, like every possible scenario, you have to literally tell your team, okay, yes, we want this. No, we don't. Or if we choose this, what path does that lead us down? And, you know, our our thing was, if he's, if he's not going to live, I'm not going to hook him up on machines. And uh, yeah, so they were like, let's schedule an induction around 34 weeks because his heart rate is steady, but there's not a lot of variation. And I I never knew that like a baby has to have like their heart rate has to have variation. It has to like spike sometimes and then go back down. And, you know, like it's it's pretty steady so you know we think it's it's getting close to the end Mm. and uh, so we had a scheduled induction for a friday it was going to be 34 weeks and the weekend before i started noticing decreased movement and my husband's like trying to calm me down he's like it's he doesn't have you know a variable heart rate he's not moving around a lot this is not a typical pregnancy or a typical baby like that makes sense that he's not moving a lot I'm like ah, I don't know and he's like ah, I wouldn't say anything like we're, we're we're going on Friday it's Sunday like it'll be fine Monday morning I just couldn't shake the feeling I was like I think I need to call so I call and they're like you need to come in and the nurse on the phone it's always so funny in these particular instances too they don't ever look at your file mm-hmm. and so the nurse is like, well, how far are you away? I was like, well, I live like 40 minutes away, but I have an older child that I need to get him, you know, situated. And she's like, well, I hope nothing happens on the way here. Oh and I was like, uh, 
Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. And I remember like I had it in my head I needed to take a shower and I got in the shower and I just cried. And I was like, my baby's dying anyway. Like <laughs> yeah. please don't put that on me that if I get there any quicker, that like I'm gonna somehow done yes. right, like that yeah. I'm gonna change anything. Yeah. And so we get to U of M and uh we're in triage and I'm like sitting there eating Cadoba. Like I just think like just out of numbness, right? Like mm-hmm. you know you're gonna give birth, so they're not gonna let you eat. So like I'm just disassociating pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and I start setting off all these alarms. And turns out I had severe preeclampsia and help syndrome. And I was one of the rare cases where there were no symptoms. Oh, my gosh. So my blood pressure was through the roof, and I'm sitting there eating Cadoba. And they're like, you don't have a headache? Like, no. Like, you don't, like, you don't feel pain on your right side? Like, I don't feel anything. Like, I don't feel anything. Actually, at this point, I'm yeah. numb inside. Thanks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, we go through all that. We get, we get hooked up, get put in a room, and it took two days. They started an induction. They gave me option for a C-section. Again, I'm like, I, I want to experience birth. Like, I, I thought this was my only shot. And yeah. it was a really shitty shot, but yeah. <laughs> it's my only one. Like, I want to try to experience as much as I can. Um, you know, his heart rate was low, but he was still hanging on. And it was a two and a half day process between induction meds and then all the meds they were having me on to keep my blood pressure down and to keep me from stroking. It's like they were counteracting each other, and it was insanity and a long, long, hard process. And I chose, you know, not to have fetal monitoring because I didn't think that I could handle it if I knew the moment that he died. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just have to birth him. Like, I, that was my goal, and that's mm-hmm. what I was focused on. No um, matter what. No matter what. was. Yep. Yeah. I had it in my head that I wanted this moment, and I didn't know what was going to be on the other side. I didn't know if he'd come out breathing or if he would already have passed. And it was a Wednesday afternoon, and it was really weird because I feel like U of M is such a busy place and so loud, and it was, like, so quiet. Mm-hmm. And it was such a beautiful moment, and, yeah, he was – he was born still. He was, he had already passed again. I don't know when in that two and a half day process, but there were still beautiful moments. We got to spend time with him. His brother got to meet him thanks to like insane technology and things like cuddle cots. You know, Mm -hmm. we were able to to stay in the hospital and, and spend some time with him over the next couple of days. So yeah, that's kind of our general story with Sawyer. Afterwards, it was in and out of the hospital based on my own health issues. And I remember talking to the OB that delivered and asking, you know, how did I get so sick? And he's like, well, you know, I really think that because of the trisomy 13, like you had an abnormal placenta and this is what happened. And you know, it, it immediately flashed me back to the maternal fetal specialist in Virginia telling me that this, you know, there's no risk to me. And then here I have another doctor telling me, well, no, it's actually probably correlated. And then, you know, after that, speaking to another MFM in this area, and he was like, no, those things are totally separate. And just all the misinformation and oh, how mm-hmm. little is actually known about genetic mutations and how many assumptions are actually made. And that's the information, the wavering information that you are supposed to make decisions on. And be in a decision-making process that, mm-hmm. that no one ever plans for or, or even like remotely has the nightmare that they're going to be faced with. So it's not something you can adequately prepare for. No, you know? no. I mean, you never think that you're going to be planning a funeral as you are like planning birth, mm-hmm. you know, and, and having birth plans that include palliative care and, you know, seeking out a doula specifically that understands grief and trauma, finding a photographer that doesn't mind capturing shots of a dead baby. I mean, there are things that absolutely nobody prepares you for and nobody can really walk you through, you know, like even our palliative team, as great as they were, 
we had to make all these decisions and we had no idea <laughs> yeah what we were doing or, or what that would entail and we're basing all these decisions off of hypothetical situations and ultrasounds that are accurate but not entirely accurate and it just felt so difficult is not even the right word like it was it was just it was weird it was weird walking through the pregnancy it was the hardest thing that I've ever done in my entire life people don't know how to support you in it they think that support means telling you that everything will be fine and that's not supportive at all they're not the ones going to these you know appointments and, and hearing all the things that are wrong with your child and um you know telling you to have faith and like there can be miracles it's like that's they're in a better place watching over you right like that's yeah. great and things that just aren't helpful mm-hmm. but honestly like what do you say to a woman who's carrying a child that's dying mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that there's anything that anyone could have said that would have made it any easier or really have felt supportive it was just a really difficult journey it was the only journey that I had with him and so I'm thankful for the moments that I've had and thankful for the kicks and the cravings and the things that I associate to him and his personality. I'm thankful for the moments after birth that we had with him. I'm thankful for the pictures. I'm thankful for all of those things and I wish that it never happened. <laughs> Gosh mm-hmm. I I hear that like I I wonder how many women have to experience that and experience it alone because they don't feel supported. And they, because like you said, how do you support right. someone in that process? And I can relate to that, not with a baby, but having dying parents or having a parent that unexpectedly passed away is all of the, I've heard them all, some from right. my best friends. Yeah, And I was like, it makes me want to poke their eyeballs out because I love you, but like, just don't say anything because yes, while that's a beautiful analogy, they're up there watching over you. They're your angels. I want them here. Yeah. So you saying that is not comforting me. It's actually right. pissing me off. Yeah. Yep. I, re- I remember being at the uh, tree planting ceremony that U of M does and it's, it's a beautiful thing. And the, f- the first year that I went, I was like, I hate this stupid tree. Like, yeah. This tree is so stupid. Yeah. And I walked away from that thing so mad because I didn't want anything tangible to remind me of him. I wanted him. Yeah. And, you know, even those support groups, you know, yeah. like you find, you find these communities and you find that a, a lot of women actually experience something similar. But even in those groups for Trisomy 13 Moms, you know, when I would talk about the choices that I was making or the decisions that I was making, I would still be met from people in that group going through the same thing. Like, well, well, my baby is fine. Like, my, my baby, like, it was mosaic, and we didn't know that till the end. And, like, look, he's one. And, like, that's great for, for you. you. Yeah. yeah. Like, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. And mm. I felt like I didn't have anywhere to turn, right, yeah. because those groups weren't even comforting. And... I don't think that people really, I think they're looking for connection, honestly. I think that they're looking for connection, you know, when they say, like, they're looking down. They don't know what else to say. And so they're trying to show you that they love you and show you that they care. But also, nobody likes to be uncomfortable. I know. And so when you're uncomfortable, oh, no, I have to sit and be uncomfortable. And I don't want to do that. That doesn't feel good. So I'm going to make sure that you feel good so then we feel good and then everything's yeah. good. Or say things that make them feel better. Right. Well, <laughs> like, don't even comfort you at right. all. But it's like they yeah. need to think of it as your baby is above you shining down. And if that doesn't, you know, that might be something that they need to do to process a very terrible thing. But that doesn't help you. Right. You know? Exactly. And, yeah. and that's exactly. why women suffer with grief alone. Yes. And silently because of that exact thing it makes other people uncomfortable when we talk about it mm-hmm. when we explain how we feel and then when you go to explain it you're like oh my god they're probably thinking there she goes again she's sad again she's this you know and so we keep it inside and then we connect to people that can understand our pain mm-hmm. yeah Definitely. thank you for sharing that Brooke yeah thanks for Honestly. sharing Sawyer with us <laughs> yes Rachel your story is different. Yeah. I just want to say thank you, Brooke, for sharing your story. And it's just, I, I was like, felt like I was in your shoes as you were telling it. And I could just see all those 
turns and I could relate to so much of it and it's just it's just so painful you know to there's no good options there's no good choices and like you said earlier like there are things that I might regret and it might not be a real regret but I wish I had other options or I wish I could have played out different scenarios Mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll get to that as I tell my story but so Mm. (laughs) making some noises so (laughs) I terminated my pregnancy for medical reasons just over five years ago I my husband and I had been living in Santa Fe New Mexico and we had just moved to Michigan I'm from here so my husband got a job at Michigan State and we were kind of everything was I had just got my master's degree I was going to start my practice here we had we were in the process of buying a home, and and I was pregnant, and I was thrilled to be pregnant. I had been wanting to be pregnant. I had one early um, chemical pregnancy, a very early miscarriage beforehand, but I was fortunate to get pregnant easily, and everything was just going according to plan. And until I went in for my 20-week anatomy scan, which I was not prepared for, I, I had had a few other ultrasounds before for various reasons, and you know, they're pretty short and they just show the heartbeat and that was it. And so I was like, okay, I'm excited to see the heartbeat again. I had no idea that the anatomy scan was this like hour long, you know, thing where they're going to look at all of the details of the baby. I had, I had suspected it was a boy and I was just excited to be confirmed because I was like, my intuition is strong. I know it's a boy. (laughs) I just want to be, you know, so we were there and it, it was a boy and I was so excited. It was actually our, my, um, my husband and I, it's our first wedding anniversary, mm-hmm. and it was in the morning, and we were going to have a special day after that, and the the tech kept leaving the room and coming back and said, I need more pictures, and I was getting nervous, but of course, the techs can't say anything, yeah. and so then, for because of some scheduling error, we left the appointment. We didn't have a follow-up with the doctor till like, later that week or the next week, and so I went home. I had think like some sort of interview or something and I was driving there and I just remember feeling euphoric like feeling like I don't think I've ever been this happy like I have oh, this beautiful boy in, yeah. my be- in my belly like I didn't care if it was a girl or a boy but I just was like it was my lifetime dream to be a mother to be pregnant and um, it was like all happening and I just remember that euphoria that like I was just feeling the gratitude in the moment and then later on later in the day I was home and I was just sitting on the couch and out of the blue his name occurred to me and we had been trying to figure out names for months and all this and then I just said Emerson and my husband said I like it and Mm -hmm. so we named him Emerson and like literally an hour later the doctor called and she said we found multiple like soft markers on the scan Usually if we find one, it's not a big deal, but there was five on yours. She talked about the brain, the stomach, the kidneys, the heart, all those things. And she said, I can't tell you what any of this means, but you need to go in for a follow-up anatomy scan on Friday. And it was Monday. Oh, so, my gosh. Torture. So I had to sit there, you know, for a week. Not. And Google? Did you Google? I did Google a little bit. I actually convinced myself that it was trisomy 18. Mm-hmm. And I, I started preparing to, mm-hmm. I didn't even know about, like, I wasn't thinking of ending the pregnancy, but I was just preparing to say goodbye. And so I had a, and then the next night I had a dream. I have tend to have dreams that are, like, powerful forces in my life. And when I have these very vivid, specific dreams, I know that they're important. And I had one of those, and I won't describe the whole dream, but I was able to meet my little boy and... Mm-hmm tell him I loved him and tell him we were going to let him go and uh, and he asked me why and Mm -hmm. I said because your body is broken and we can't bring you into this broken body and we're gonna let you go so you could come back and he said okay mommy and like I just was able to like love him and like hug him and like it was very moving for me and there was another little boy in the background and but I took it as like I felt like I had his permission to say goodbye Mm -hmm. and then I woke up from that dream and all I could say was I have they're twins but not twins like what is this twins but not twins thing Mm -hmm. I'm like why am I thinking I have twins I don't have twins but that just seed planted in me and I woke up in tears my husband was still there and I told him the dream 
and we both like knew it was over like it was just that was such a a painful and beautiful moment like you're saying like there's so much beauty in these horrible like experiences so so in that moment I just I don't know I was numb for the rest of the week people were like oh you seem kind of okay and I'm like I know I don't know I think I'm in shock like <laughs> yeah. I'm still hungry I'm still pregnant I'm still having cravings right so we go on Friday to the anatomy scan in Detroit it's many hours it's like one or two hours oh meanwhile I had a amnio mm-hmm. which I got the results while we were closing our, on our house we were saying oh on our house gosh. it's like oh I have a phone call and actually there was no genetic findings there wasn't trisomy 18 so at that point I was very confused they said there's no genetic mal- deformities or you know anything with your baby and I was like okay now I'm confused but let's keep going and at the anatomy scan that was horrible and painful just to for me, seeing my baby on the ultrasound, like, flipping and moving, and, and the tech was, anyway, I was just like, she was just as if I wasn't going to have to terminate. She's like, oh, your baby's going to be a butt sleeper with his butt in the air, and oh, just like, oh, he's gosh. sucking his thumb. She was just really like humanizing this, yes, him, yes. and of course he was human, but, like, it was just so painful because I knew I was going to say goodbye, and then we met with this wonderful genetic counselor, and she, like gave me some diagnosis that I had never heard of and it was called dandy walker malformation and it's it's parts of the brain is missing and it's abnormalities and it is a bit of a spectrum some people have it and they actually don't even know it and they function well and some people it's terribly severe and they have no life they can't like talk or walk or eat or anything like that so um, she said your case is like that case severe it's okay. very severe. There's a, we are 90% sure it's extremely severe. And you have this option. You can terminate or you can carry and then send us off. And so we just, you know, decided to terminate the pregnancy and had to then go through all those steps. And I, then I had to choose, well, how am I going to do it? A, a D&E is a surgical procedure that is outlawed in many places now. Mm-hmm. Or I could do like a labor and delivery which at first I thought I would do that because I wanted that experience. But then the more I thought of it, I didn't know if I had the strength to sit through a potentially three-day process. It was going to be over $10,000, I think, whereas the DNA was much less money. You know, you, you have to think of all these things. Okay, so unfortunately, yeah. I, I want to ask this question because it's a little more technical. Mm-hmm. So you cannot do that in your hospital, can you? Do you have to go somewhere... So yeah, so okay. I was, I was at Henry Ford, and they will not do a DNA. So okay. I had to go to Detroit, and I was before the twenty-four week cutoff, because there is a twenty-four week cutoff where you cannot have a, a DNA. I don't even know if you can induce labor at that point. You'd have to go out of state, which some people do if they don't have the information. So there's yeah. a lot of, this is where politics gets involved. You know, banning abortions at twenty weeks is oftentimes the moment that you find out about things and then it might take several weeks to get more information sometimes it takes even longer so we had to make six weeks are you saying at six weeks no at 20 weeks sometimes people get information right that maybe takes more time okay i just wanted to clarify i thought you were saying that people just realized that they were pregnant at 20 weeks oh no yeah yeah no they might have their anatomy scan which is the first moment they might notice like me like that something was wrong right so then we had to make a lot of decisions and there's all these things to go through and i chose a dne and i had that when i was 21 weeks pregnant and it was it was pretty devastating. It was, and then we moved into our home two days later. So, mm. it was this collision of like happy moments, which were not happy for me at all. So, it was devastating. It was painful. It was isolating. I don't regret any of my choices, but I do wish I have these moments where I wish I could have held my baby and mm. seen his face because I think I spent several years trying to like put a picture of him together in my mind which I was always unable to do. Yeah. So, but I also, you know, thought that I would go on to have another baby and I didn't want my first birth to be that experience. I was hopeful that I could have another opportunity, which I did. I have a three and a half year old son um, named Ezra and gave birth to him and 
had a beautiful experience with him. So I am glad that I didn't, you know, I'm glad that I made my choices that I made, but also it's like this impossible scenario where Mm -hmm. like they're shitty choices and there's no good options. And I remember saying like at my 15 week self, when they say, do you want these tests and whatever? I was like, I guess I'll have the tests, but like, I can't imagine anything that would make me end this pregnancy. Yeah. And literally four weeks later, five Mm -hmm. weeks later, I, you know, I couldn't even walk in my own shoes until I was in them. So I think it just goes back to we cannot make any any like assumptions, decisions and and hearing your story, Brooke, how that you had struggled with infertility for nine years and this was like your chance and I mean that is it's it's just so understandable. It's just like of course, you know, mm-hmm. like I thought it was my only pregnancy and only birth. Yeah. And so it's of course you make decisions based on the context mm-hmm. that you're living, based on what you know. You don't, we don't know the future. Mm-hmm. Um so we're just doing the best with these shitty situations and then it doesn't help to my termination was in 2016 in september so we were straight up in the election there was you know abortion is i mean it's always the talk but it was so painful to watch the debates and just be in that environment and being like these people don't understand like why and I didn't understand before, because you hear an abortion at 20 weeks, you're like, well, that sounds weird. Like, why? You know? But until you know, and then I've connected with a lot of other people who've experienced similar things. So anyway, it's important to me to tell my story and to make space. And I'm so grateful to be here, because as a person of the TFMR community, we feel so left out. Yes. We feel so silenced. You can't talk about abortion, you know? Like, I would go to support groups and be like, I don't know if they're going to, like, kick me out of here because I don't know their political beliefs. Yeah. And, like, my heart is broken, but, like, I have nowhere to exist. So I found a support group for people who've ended wanted pregnancies, and that was, like, such a life changer for me because I was like, oh, these people, they get it, and I'm not going to be judged here. Mm -hmm. But anywhere else, like, wherever I go and tell my story... I, you just don't know. It's just a risk I take over and over and over. Have you had a lot more negative responses than, I guess, more empathetic? Um, I mean, you know, I, I'm my circle, you know, my little world that I live in are supportive of my choices. It's when I do interviews and they, you know, I did one for Michigan Radio. That was a big deal for me. And, of course, like, I didn't see the comments for, like, two years. And I went back and, like, oh, my God, the comments were, like, horrific. Mm-hmm. So then I learned never to read the comments. But can you tell them the story part of you stopped and talked to protesters? Yeah. Right? Is that okay? Oh, Sorry, yeah. I don't mean to. Yeah. I just, yeah. I just love you for that oh. <laughs> so much. Yeah, I'll never understand, like, what got into me. But <laughs> I was... I was must have been like six weeks after and I was driving down the road and I saw abortion protesters and I just was so furious I was like so angry I wanted to like honk at them and like yell at them and cuss them out and all things I would like never let's not like not not you yeah (laughs) and instead I pulled over and I went into a parking spot and I was like I think I'm gonna go talk to them and I just like sat there with my heart beating and I was like okay And I just did, and I just went over to them, and I said, my name is Rachel, like, I had an abortion, like, I want to tell you my story, because I don't know where I can fit in in your beliefs. And it was this incredibly beautiful experience. You know, it could have been anything. It could have been people telling me to go to hell. Yeah. It could have been violent. Like, it could have been anything, but it was these four people, two men and two women, and they just, like, leaned into me, and they're like, we're so sorry, and we're not here to judge you. And... And we and they just said, like, we just had this long conversation about life is suffering. And mm-hmm. I said, yes, but I feel like I chose my suffering over my child's suffering because he wouldn't necessarily have died. He would have lived, like, in an institution for whoever knows how long with surgeries. And it would just wouldn't, I, like, so I just couldn't, you know, bear that kind of suffering. And we had this beautiful experience. And... They asked me if I wanted to pray with them, and I was like, well, I'm Jewish, but okay. And I think they were really surprised because with, in retrospect, I think that they thought I was coming to them to, for forgiveness, to be saved, kind of, to mm-hmm. be absolved of my, my action, which I, in the moment I didn't interpret that, and I'll never know what they interpreted, but 
I just know that I was like, I have to find their humanity Mm -hmm. because if I hate them, then I'm just going to be putting this distance between us and I'm part of this problem of polarization. So I just... I just believe that people generally are good people and I was confirmed and with that, with those people and just had to, yeah, I had to see their humanity and let them see mine. And one of the men said, you know, we will all forever be changed from this experience. And, you know, and I definitely was and I don't know where they are now, but it was just something I felt compelled to do. So that's beautiful. Like I, I don't know if I could do that. I, I would feel the same way just mm-hmm. like my heart pounding and I've been compelled to do certain things so maybe I could but mm-hmm. I think it gives like a different perspective to them and like you said it could have turned out any possible mm-hmm. way right but I I always go back to like as moms we should be the most understanding people we were raising children and we're all doing it so differently and sometimes women tend to be the most judgmental people because men can't put themselves in our shoes right they're just like you should you know they're telling us how to it all go, that's a whole another conversation right <laughs> the whole Texas thing but mm-hmm. I don't even go there but I've been in this like I said I've been in this situation and for you to share that I think it gives it a space because I'm in my late 30s and I still have not ever heard somebody's story like this like I've mm-hmm. not ever been in a space where someone has shared their story and you don't realize how common it is because you guys, not you guys, but people aren't talking about it. Right. They're not sharing that story. One of my very good friends, a business partner, she had a stillborn and she still doesn't know. They don't know why, but it has, it's forever changed her and hearing her story. And because I've been through grief myself, I was able to be empathetic, but most people haven't experienced it, Right. And they're lucky enough yeah. to never have to put themselves and in And those people shoes. are the most judgmental. Like, I mm-hmm. love that you yeah. stopped and and gave them your story. And you didn't have to, right? Yeah. Uh, but I doubt those people have ever been in a situation like yours. And it's so easy to judge and decide for yourself that a decision is either good or bad mm-hmm. when you've never had to make yeah. it. Right. And, you know, my husband and I, in preparation for this talk, we were talking last night, like, if I had had the information of me having preeclampsia and help syndrome, would we have made a different choice? And he was really quick to be like, no, like, I don't think so. And I was like, we have a five-year-old who's sleeping. Like, he was, you know, three at the time. He still needs a mom, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm not sure I would have made the same decision. I have no idea, right? And you do the best that you can in the moment and you make the best of the worst decision. Right. Right. <laughs> like yeah. none of this felt good. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not like you made that decision super confidently and like felt no like nothing mm-hmm. after yeah. fa- after the fact. Right. There's well, I, so many emotions mm-hmm. and it's so vulnerable and I I love that story of your dream and that you were able to have some sense of closure mm-hmm. with him and how beautiful that is and connection most people will never have that or they have it and don't realize I'm a dream person too Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so when I'm I'm like oh I feel what you're saying Mm -hmm. because most people just put it off right right and the fact you have this like you beautiful moment Mm -hmm. and with your husband yeah it was definitely I just like a blessing a gift for me it's like one of the biggest gifts of my life and I know lots of other women who don't have those experience and don't have those kind of that deep confidence that it was okay but just to bring the story for full circle because it is pretty amazing is that I did go on to get pregnant with my son Ezra and he had the exact same due date as Emerson a year later wow. so it was like the twins and oh then my gosh. the freakiest part is that in the dream the little boy was of two or three and I could, you know, saw his features and everything. And now that my son Ezra is three, it's like it looks identical to that child in the dream, which is just like mind blowing. But yeah, so so I just it's just more. It's like we can we can decide to look for these synchronicities, these little moments if it helps us. It's not going to help everybody who doesn't have certain beliefs or whatever, but. For me, it felt so important to search for the meaning in it because it it felt so meaningless. It mm-hmm. had me question everything I had ever thought to be true. 
I, I just suddenly felt like I don't know what I believe. I don't know what's true. I thought I knew, and now I don't know nothing. No, don't know anything. But I, I am going to decide to put meaning onto it, to mm-hmm. give it meaning myself, because that feels, that feels healing for some reason. It just is like, it's just the most. It was just the most. It's tragic, you know. When things are yes. tragic, they're meaningless, and that's yeah. that's the hard, one of the hard layers about it. So, finding these synchronicities, these you know, small little things. It just helped me to, it helped me to cope, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did it lead you on the path of where, where you are today? Absolutely. Career-wise, okay. Yeah, yeah. it's 100% influenced the work that I do now. I, I do women's health and wellness. I have an online program, but it's deep and layered program. It's like about lifestyle modifications and sleep and nutrition and hormones, but it's, it's, it's like I take my whole person to it, the way I show up for my clients. I found, I don't know about you, what you used to, I'd actually be curious to hear, Brooke, what you, how you coped in the aftermath. For me, I, I found writing and creativity was medicine, but it still continues to be. I have my first published essay that just came out in a magazine about grief this month. So it's just this it continues to be this, like, it gives me, you know, you take something devastating and you turn it into life force. Yeah. And it continues to be my life force to be creative and to make meaning and to make beauty from something so devastating. So, yeah, how, how did you cope, Brooke? Well, I love hearing you say that because it's also your son's legacy, too, mm-hmm. right? Like, as, as parents, like, we want to see our children have this future and make an impact and when your child dies Mm -hmm. it's then your responsibility to carry that on and I love that you feel him and honor him through your work I I would say the same thing you know it's funny I actually found Jesse's group literally two weeks after (laughs) Sawyer died and it was a lifeline for me to just be able to come and cry somewhere and I mean, nobody wants to talk about dead babies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I say that, and I know it's really uncomfortable, but I hate saying, like, I lost my baby. I didn't lose him. Like, I know exactly where he is. Yeah. I didn't lose him. Yeah. He died. Yeah. So it's uncomfortable, but I think we should say it. And mm-hmm. it fueled me. You know, I, I was in grad school. I wanted to be a therapist, and I thought I was going to work with teens in trauma because I have some personal history, like, with foster care and was a foster parent. And Sawyer radically changed that. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw the need for perinatal mental health and women who have lost or women that, you know, suffer from postpartum depression. And just coming alongside women was really important to me. And so, yeah, I, I, I work in perinatal mental health as a therapist. And specifically, I have a lot of clients that have dealt with grief and death and stillbirth and, you know, medically terminating pregnancies like I that's the work that I do and it's a way to honor Sawyer's legacy and it's really hard but I would say it's rewarding Mm -hmm. you know like I I feel like I'm able to maybe hold the space that others were able to hold for me or create a space that doesn't exist yet Mm -hmm. yeah that's beautiful Mm -hmm. oh my gosh I'm just like (laughs) Because it's women like you we need more of that use their pain for purpose mm-hmm. and they do something with it because it makes you guys so much more empathetic and you teach your children that and you create these groups and these spaces for women that they don't have because there's not a lot of spaces for women, especially moms mm-hmm. who have dealt with things like this in any form. Grief, I feel like, is, you know, like, we get to deal with it for the rest of our lives. Right. They deal with us telling them our story, and then they carry on with their lives. Yep. And that's where judgment comes to, right? They judge us in the moment, and then they don't give it a second thought, and we get to deal with our situations, our choices, for the remainder of our lives, wondering if we made the right decision. And I always, we we had this conversation about grief on a previous podcast, and Recently, we had to put my dad's dog down, and it was, like, for me, the last loving piece. Everybody is – we were so humane to our animals, and everybody's so accepting Mm -hmm. of how humane we are to our animals. Oh, gosh, you did the right thing. You know, they didn't suffer. 
And I remember thinking when that comment was made to me, it was actually somebody who helped me through the whole process. And when she said that, I had never thought about it, how humane we are to our animals. I wish that I would have been able to do that for my dad because he, he was just so in so much pain mm-hmm. and he was so miserable and he, and it was to a point he wasn't himself. And so hearing you guys say that you made the decision for your baby based off of what you felt was the right decision yeah. with the information, mm-hmm. which is a whole nother conversation you were mm-hmm. given right. by medical right. professionals who we trust, right. who don't always give us the right information. Like I said, a whole nother podcast. Mm-hmm. Right. We have a lot of thoughts on that, but I'm just incredibly grateful that you shared that. And hopefully women that are listening that maybe haven't been pregnant yet, who have a friend that's been pregnant, or maybe 10 years from now have a daughter that has to be in this very situation, can look at them and feel and be empathetic and understand what they even remotely went through because they listened to this podcast and listened to your stories. Mm-hmm. And there's a beautiful part to that. And I know it's not easy sharing your story, and we're honored that you shared it here. Thank you. Truly grateful. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, I well, I want to finish it up and just – because I, I do believe this is several parts. There's several parts to this, right, going into, like, the postpartum stuff. And because you, you shared the story of the situation. Mm-hmm. Now the aftermath is a t- – totally different reality mm-hmm. is, is a totally different reality. So I want to kind of honor your time, but also put this into a part two where we can share that because what do women do here? We've heard the story. Now the woman listening that's in your situation, what's the aftermath look like? That's the hard part. Right. You know, it, it, it truly is because even for losing your parent and a, you know, I was only, it was literally my young thirties and there were no spaces for me. Nobody was talking about, there's no groups <laughs> that are out there like, come, let, let us love you. Mm-hmm. Nobody tells you what to do, the steps. Nobody gives them to you. They just expect, oh, it's been a year. It's been three. You should be okay. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like women listening, hearing your story, want to hear, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. It's happened. What's my next step? And so I love that you shared that too because, you know, I haven't lost a parent, right? And so it, it gives me a picture as to what that could look like and allows me to hear kind of your pain and what people have told you. Because coming from like the baby loss world, I feel like, oh, like, well, if you lose a parent, like you're allowed to talk about that. And you're allowed to talk about how hard Mother's Day is. But there's this thing when you when your baby dies that you, maybe you've got like six months to a year and then you should be over it, especially if you have any mm-hmm. subsequent children. Mm-hmm. Like then you should be totally fine. And, and like, why are grateful. you still sad? Mm-hmm. And like, why are there certain triggers for you? And yeah, you should be grateful. Like you've got living children. Like why are you why are you still sad or why do you still think about him? I actually had a friend six months later say, you know, do you think like you you're over it? Like do you think you've processed? <laughs> I'm going to be processing and grieving for the rest of my life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Like, no, it didn't, it didn't just end. And, you know, it's very interesting. I love hearing your story and how close, you know, your pregnancies were because I got pregnant six weeks after having Sawyer. Mm -hmm. And again, like didn't think that could happen. And it did. And it threw me for a tailspin because I was grieving, but now my entire body was a trigger Mm -hmm. and every single moment. I was reliving that trauma mm-hmm. again, but, you know, be happy because you're pregnant and it's going to be different. And it, and it's a miracle. Uh-huh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's oh, my so gosh. True. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, it could be a whole other podcast yeah. just to talk about was, yeah. the, the <laughs> aftermath. Yeah. And, yes. and even just the gray areas of pregnancy after right? these situations. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just the gray areas of all these communities and these women that suffer. And it, it doesn't – like, the conversation isn't just about Texas, right? Like, I I have friends in the trisomy community that had to travel to different states in order to get care for her baby that was diagnosed with trisomy 13. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he is a thriving two-year-old now. But she had to literally leave her state because there, the doctors, once you have that diagnosis – they won't do anything. There's no intervention. And so there's not even like a consistent like 
care plan across the board for any of these children with these diagnoses. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> literally, literally my brain's just going, okay, we need to, because we need, nobody's having these conversations. So right. somebody has to do it because they're important and they impact us, not just our generation, but our, our children's generation, the next generation of people that we're raising to be more empathetic and understanding mm-hmm. in these situations. And like you said, you, you, think that you know when you lose a parent like the thought process the process of that it's the same like people are like I hear all the time well at least you don't have to take care of them when they get old oh gosh there's one you know that is probably a common one or what hasn't it been like three years Mm. well yeah but see but when you don't process it because you don't want to feel the pain, mm-hmm. <laughs> then it feels like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. So everything's a trigger. The smell in the air, mm-hmm. the holidays, like all of these things, right? Or moments that your children's ha- that your children have, your parents will never experience. You know, so there are a lot of things, which is like a whole, like I said, a whole mm-hmm. other conversation. But I want to leave. I want you guys to leave our readers with one thing that you would tell someone who has never been there. And one part, one thing you would tell someone that is is here right now. I know it's a tough one, right? Mm-hmm. So who wants to go first? <laughs> I I think my first one is really simple. You know, one thing to tell someone who's never been in that situation is just make do not judge. You have no idea until you are literally in those shoes. So do your best to just hold that back and be compassionate and. Mm-hmm kind because people going through whatever you know the situation is they need some compassion and kindness so that's how I'd say (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, the second question what was that what would you say to somebody listening right now that's currently going through what you're Mm -hmm. what you've experienced that just maybe got a diagnosis or Mm -hmm. maybe it was a couple weeks ago or yes this is something that I have been learning over these past few years but my therapist told me but she said you can learn to expand the container of what you can hold. So you can hold this devastating experience and you can also hold joy and love and beauty at the same time. And it feels like, how do we do that? But you just take deep breaths and you learn, honor and you accept and you can expand your capacity to hold all of that joy and all of that pain. And for someone going through it, it just, I, I've been there. I was totally devastated. I'm five years out, and it does get better. It does get easier. There's, there is, I still have moments where they're very hard, and the grief comes out of nowhere. But it's, it doesn't have to be. It's not always going to be as hard as it is, like, right now. Where can they find you, Rachel? You can find me. I have a website, rachel-redmond.com, and you can find me on Instagram at rachel.e.redmond. And I'm talking all things women's wellness there. Okay. We'll put it in our show notes, too, so people can find you. All right, Brooke. Yeah, I I echo that. If if you haven't been in a situation like this, be grateful. Yeah. (laughs) But also, I'm sure there is a situation that you have been in that you felt isolated in and that no one understood. And so try to tap into that before you say anything or don't say anything. I love that. (laughs) And then for for somebody who's going through it right now, there is no right way to grieve. And grief is not linear. It's a process. And like Rachel said, you you know, I love that you said it gets better. I would almost say it's not as visceral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Like you, there are moments that will sideswipe you. I'm 2 years out and there's there's moments that will sideswipe you, but you don't feel it that heaviness every single day mm-hmm. forever. Right. And so, yeah, it's just not as right there like yeah, exactly. lump in your throat right. mm-hmm. kind of feeling. It's waves. Mhm. Yeah. Constant waves. Yeah. Mm. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Jesse, do you want to add anything? Do you want to tell us about your infertility and loss support group, maybe yes. some dates coming up. Yes, and yes. I would say there's two articles we should share that go along with what Brooke just said, too, about grief being like waves. And there's another, there's the ball in the box analogy that I always really mm-hmm. like to share with people. 
it's a really beautiful analogy for how grief can hit and the ball gets smaller but it still hits that button every once in a while and so those are two ways I've really started to understand how to talk about grief with people who might not get it yeah (laughs) um but yeah our infertility and loss group meets uh once a month on Wednesdays from 7 30 to 9 30 dates coming up there's one next week October 27th but I don't know if the podcast will be out by then and then we have another one um, coming up November 17th and I just want to make it very clear that anyone struggling with infertility and any version of loss is welcome so whether that's a miscarriage a stillbirth TFMR infant loss you're welcome there and our goal is really to hold space without trying to tell you anything of how to feel or how to grieve or how to process but just to have that space and walk alongside you so you don't feel like you're walking it alone and then our pally group which is the pregnancy after loss and infertility and as brooke mentioned that can be its whole other ball game of of grief and emotion and triggers and can just be really difficult to navigate we also meet once a month and that group meets on sundays from one to three and our next one coming up we have one coming up this weekend in October and then November 7th is the next Sunday after that where we'll be meeting and and that's for again anyone who's um, now pregnant after struggling with infertility and or any kind of loss because that's just a really tricky chapter to navigate oh my god I can't can't imagine can't even imagine actually Thank you, Jesse, yes, for being here. Thank you here. for having me here. Yeah. And thank you, ladies, so much for sharing your story and being compassionate um, with one another. And just, um, I, I don't know if you guys always know how much you're helping other people by sharing Emerson and Sawyer with us. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks. Yes. Don't forget, you guys, to, well, first off, thanks for being here with us today. And don't forget to like rate and review and subscribe so that more moms can listen to the unfiltered mom have a great day